hey, grab your Bible and turn to the index page um, to find the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's there towards the middle of your Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and give your attention to the reading of God's Word today. All right, please follow along with me. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're glad that you're here as we start um, a new journey through a book of the Bible. And so uh, if you're new here at Westside, primarily what we do is just teach through the scriptures. And I was reminded this morning via social media, um, this time last year, we started our journey through the book of Daniel. And so we try to just go back and forth from a New Testament book to an Old Testament book because we love the scriptures. And so we want to know what God has said and revealed about himself. And so as we start a journey through Ecclesiastes, um, which is actually really difficult to spell. Um, I had to this week always catch myself doing that. Um, It's an ancient, ancient book. And as I was thinking about how to try to introduce this to us, um, I was reminded, raise your hand if you've ever seen this famous piece of art, this famous statue before. Yeah, yeah. Um, extremely famous. It's called The Thinker, or um, the, the Poet sometimes it goes by. And it was created by Francis Roden. And actually, The Thinker, um, the original one, is located at the University of Louisville in Kentucky. 
I was like, this world-renowned piece of art is in Kentucky, right? I mean, it only would have been funnier if it was in Arkansas or something like that. Like, I, and then I, uh, when I was studying, I realized that it was revealed for the first time in 1904 at the World's Fair in St. Louis, which is just crazy, the history behind that. And so um, Francis created this as a part of a larger piece, And it was actually created to be a part of Dante's comedy. And so if you've ever read that in high school or in college, and actually the thinker was a part of a larger piece, and he is supposed to be sitting um, there in the comedy at the gates of hell. And there's supposed to be an entire scene around him. And this piece sort of took on a life of its own. It became so detailed. Um, It's considered in the art world a contemplative piece. And so you sit and you think as you look at the thinker. And the question that always arises is, what is he thinking about, (laughs) right? Um, what, What question, being there sort of at the gates of hell in eternity, a part of Dante's comedy... What is he thinking about? And if, if, if I were to try to give you a physical symbol or to say the book of Ecclesiastes is like, I would say the book of Ecclesiastes is like the thinker uh, for, for two primary reasons. The first one is that's the posture that the writer of Ecclesiastes is taking. Um, there are 37 questions in the book. Deep questions. And we, we encountered one in the very third verse. Well, what does man gain or profit from all of the toil under the sun? The writer is sitting and thinking and contemplating about life. And so secondly, if that's the writer's posture, then that needs to be our posture in the book. Sometimes in, in Christianity and sometimes when we come to the Bible, um, we want things very easy. And oftentimes the biggest pushback when I get from people when trying to encourage them to read or study the scriptures is, it's hard. Yes, yes it is. But God forbid we come to church and learn something, right? And so what this book is going to challenge us to do is, it's not going to spoon feed us very simple answers. It's going to require us to to contemplate and to think about the hard things of life. And, and when it comes to thinking and questions um, in, in philosophy or in literature, there's four what, what people call the four big questions. And what I love about this is maybe you're a non-believer. Um, you know, we welcome you. We're so glad. We get people invited all the time. You're sort of just peeking over the fence about what's all this about. Maybe you have questions about God, about Jesus. What is Christianity? No matter your background, there are four questions in life that everyone encounters that you are required to answer. And we get all types of streams of different faith or philosophy or things like that because really of these four questions. The first one is, where do we come from? That's a question of origin, right? And uh, what's interesting is spend time around little kids. It's surprising how at such an early young age, kids 
have these deep questions. Like, my kids want to know, um, who is granddaddy's granddaddy, right? Like, like, where do we come from? That's a question of origin. You will encounter that in your life, and you have to have an answer for that. The second question is, why are we here? That's a question of, of meaning, And surprisingly, um, I was in student ministry for a number of years, and I think sometimes we undersell teenagers and students because oftentimes the turmoil that a senior high student or someone in college um, is, is going through is that question. Like, why am I here, right? So we go to college for nine years, and then on the eighth year, we switch our major and give our parents a heart attack, right? You know, I was going to be a doctor, but I think I'm going to be a DJ now. And I'm going to, you know, right? Oh, and then they pass out, right? But why, why is it always the pressure of where are you going to college? What are you going to do? Who are you going to marry? What? That's a question of meaning and of purpose. Does my life matter? And why am I here? The third question is this. What's right and what's wrong? That's a question of morality. And I know no more... Um, of an explosive question in 2019 and something like that, right? But we're always searching for a standard. Why is this right? Why is that not? What, what is helpful for a society? Those are moral questions, and they're extremely important. But then the last question is this, where are we going? Where are we going? And that's a question of, of destiny, right? So here's what's interesting. Um, scientists... Um, a physics person, no matter what, you, you have to answer those questions. And what's interesting is, like, everybody agrees on a basic number of things. Like, um, nobody disagrees that our universe had a beginning, that there was a starting point for all of this. Nobody disagrees with that. And then everyone agrees that this thing, life, the universe, time, it's going somewhere, Right? So buckle up, because we are on a ride in regards to that. But you have to answer these questions. And for us as Christians, we believe and love the Scripture so much because we believe that the Bible answers those questions. And primarily what the book of Ecclesiastes deals with is it deals with that second question. What's the point? What's what's the purpose of all of this? Ecclesiastes is brutally honest, brutally honest. It sort of takes the varnish and the lacquer off of the shininess of life and says, yeah, but when you get down to it, this is what it's like. And what I love about this book is it pressures you on your answer. So you may just, you know, quote off a Bible verse. What's the meaning of life? Well, I know that, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, right? The writer of Ecclesiastes is going to go, yeah, why do you believe that? Oh, really? You really believe that? Oh, you believe that um, walking a right line and treating others how, how you yourself want to be treated is, is the way of life? What do you do when injustice happens? Or if your cliche line is, ah, just pray about it. What do you do when you pray about it and you still suffer? What are you going to do? The writer of Ecclesiastes puts us in a corner and says, what do you believe and why do you believe it? And removes all of the shiny answers off of the table 
and confronts life with us. And so what we have to do is, um, today is going to be a little bit more teachy than preachy. Don't worry, I'll still yell or something like that, and it'll be a good time. But we have to learn some stuff about the Bible, right? So we actually use our Bible at Westside when we come to church. It's a crazy concept, but I think people are catching on, you know? So we have to learn about the context and the background of this. The Bible is, is not just necessarily one book, um, it's one grand story, but it's 66 different books, 44 different authors, um, three primary languages. And so this letter, this book was written by someone to someone in real time and in real space. And so the first question that, that we have to ask is, who wrote this? We're going to consider that the author of the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon. And so if you didn't grow up in church or do the Awanas thing and sort of get all the sashes and stuff, um, Solomon was King Solomon. You could read about him in 1 Kings. And this dude's life was straight out of a Jerry Springer episode. I mean, this guy, I mean, it was great. Like the whole David and Bathsheba, that's how Solomon entered into the world. Um, And what's crazy is he was king in Jerusalem. That's why... I make the argument, like if you drop down and look at verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Verse 1 of chapter 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So the word preacher there actually means lecturer. And Ecclesiastes, we, we encounter that word in the New Testament, ecclesia which means gathering, and it's actually the word for the church, the ecclesia, the gathering of the church. So, really, to set the context, it's almost like we've gathered in a lecture hall, and Solomon is our philosophy professor, and he is going to teach us about life. But why it's important to know about Solomon is, there was a point in his life where he kind of got this, like, Aladdin experience, where God was like, hey man, ask anything and I'll grant it to you. And Solomon thought about it and didn't ask for wealth. He didn't ask for power. He didn't ask for pleasure, prestige, any of that stuff. Solomon asked for divine wisdom. And God was so taken back that he didn't ask for money or anything that God said, I'm going to give you this divine wisdom. But because you didn't ask for these other things, I'm going to give you these other things as well. History records that Persian kings and people would travel all across the world to come and to sit at the feet of Solomon. And that he was so wealthy that people would bring him blocks of gold the size of your car. And that he was getting multiple of those every single day. So this wisdom, this background, and all of this. The reason why it's important to know that Solomon wrote this is because he has credibility. Big credibility. You want to have a conversation about wealth? Uh, Solomon, he could hang with Steve Jobs. He could hang with Bill Gates. You want to talk about pleasure, prestige, and all of that? There was one dark phase in Solomon's life where he thought one wife wasn't enough, so he got like 30 of them, which wasn't a good idea, okay? (laughs) Never a good idea, guys, okay? Right? And then, so, so all of this pleasure, all of that, and he even says there in verse 17, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. What he's saying is, so I hung out in the lecture halls, Harvard, Yale, all of that. I gave my life to some of that. Oh, and then Hugh Hefner and crazy living and all of that. I tried that too. 
he is going to be our lecturer to talk about life. Solomon is the author. When did he write it? Um, It had to be probably during his life and some of it after in the community, about 10th century B.C. And the reason why that's important to understand, it gets us into the genre, okay? So the Bible um, is not written in the same format per every book, meaning... Um, the Psalms are poetic. They read like lyrics from, from a movie or a song, right? Or there's the biographies of Jesus, the Gospels in the New Testament. Wisdom literature, you've got to understand, this wasn't written to a Western American culture. This is ancient, ancient literature. And the reason why is, is because Western literature is written on what's called a linear path, which means once upon a time. There was a little village, and there was a king. And the story sort of takes off like a plane, just a very straight line, climax, resolution, all that. Basically, it's sort of like a Hallmark movie, that if you've seen one of them, you've seen every single one of them, okay? Right? At Christmas time, a newsflash, ladies, he's going to arrive in time on Christmas, He's going to make it, and, they're going to make, and he's going to have a little Labrador puppy. And, oh, there it is, right? That's linear story. Ancient wisdom literature is what's called cyclical. It takes one concept and then makes a journey and hits it from all different types of angles. The reason why I'm telling you that, and it's important to understand, is because it's a difficult book. Um, just this week, as we were preparing to do this and I'm writing things out, I just went into Tyler's office and I said, what are we doing studying this book, right? It's very difficult to understand, but we have to take the posture of the thinker and submit ourselves to God's word. But what's the purpose? Why, why is this in our Bible? Because, man, if you sit down, and I would encourage you this week to read through Ecclesiastes you're, I mean, it's going to be like the weather outside. You're going to be like, wow, that was real positive, right? Why is this in here? It's brutally honest. And what Solomon is doing is he is confronting reality, your life and my life, in light of eternity. And he's saying, do you realize how much time you spend at work? Why? You know, if we were going to plan a vacation or go on a trip, we would plan things out and see how much time and what's the quickest route and this, that, and the other. And Solomon says, you think so intently about something like that, but something that you give your life to, you don't even consider the meaning or the purpose of something like that. And it's such a privilege for us to ecclesia, Ecclesiastes, to gather and to sit under that. Many of you know when we announced this week that Miss Margaret Cross, a founding member of Westside. Westside started in April of 1964 in the basement of Margaret and Ted Cross's home. Miss Margaret went to be with the Lord this week. And one of the great privileges that me and Tyler and the people in the church got to have is when we would go and visit her when her health was still good enough to sit and have a talk. And you would sit in her living room and she would sit in her designated chair, 87 years old. Just living life. Married, had kids. Suffered through through illness. And we would get to sit and ask questions. 
Now, the answers that you get from someone who's 87 years old, who's lived such a good life, those are valuable answers. Most scholars and theologians believe that Solomon is writing this towards the end of his life. Imagine. Imagine if I told you, let's let's go have a conversation with the wisest person outside of Jesus that ever lived, who had the most wealth, who made some of the worst mistakes, who who just lived this crazy life. We're going to go and you're going to get to ask that person anything. And one scholar said that you should not read or teach through this book unless you're over 60 years old. Because there are some elements of it that you just won't understand, right? It's time. If I were to sit and have a conversation with Miss Margaret when she was 30, 40, 50, 60, the answers to those questions would not be the same as they were when she was 80 seven years old. So what we're going to do is start a journey at the feet of the thinker, of the poet, if you will. And we're going to confront our lives, the reality of our lives. And he's going to press us on our answers. But we have to learn a few things to understand the entire book. And this is where the majority of the sermon is going to be. The first phrase that we have to understand is the phrase, under the sun, under the sun. Sounds like a lyrics to a Beatles song, right? Look at what he says in verse 3. What does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? Verse 9. There is nothing new under the sun. Verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. He uses the phrase under the sun in this book 29 times. And there's a lot of debate and understanding as to what it means. Um, The... The first understanding is, is that um, this is all there is. Zip. What you see is what you get, right? That's what a lot of people think Solomon's saying. Yes and no. That, that makes a little bit of sense. And what Solomon's saying is what you see is what life is. And we try to polish it and make it shiny and put little bows on it and try to make life a lot better than what it actually really is under the sun. Yes, that's a little bit true. But again, this is ancient wisdom literature. And the way that I think we understand it is in verse 9. Look at what he says. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Oh, really, Solomon? Well, we got iPhones. Checkmate. We've got Google. That's new, right? And Solomon's going to go, no, 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 no. Google? A desire for information? That's not new. Right, So I, I grew up the youngest of four boys, and, and my mom would oftentimes make all of us matching outfits. <laughs> so I have tragedies of these pictures of all of us like looking like little Amish kids sitting there, right? And, and my mom would make stuff, new outfits. Uh, did she make it? Was it new? Or did she take materials that already existed and then make them. Or a table or a chair. Is that new? 
because the wood was, was already around. You see, I think Solomon is challenging us. Yes, under the sun does mean this is all there is a little bit. But you have to understand, Jewish rabbis um, oftentimes to teach would ask questions. So Jesus, oftentimes, when he was asked a question, his answer would be what? Another question. Jewish rabbis would ask, if this is all there is under the sun, they would ask this question, then what is over the sun? What's over it? Ah, see, now you get into the understanding. In the scripture, the sun was a marker of time, right? That's the way they told time in ancient days. But anything that was over the sun was called the heavens. And the heavens is where God dwells. So what Solomon is saying, follow me with this. Solomon is saying, we live under the sun in the here and now. But there is something over the sun, the heavens, eternity, where God dwells. And to answer the question, what do we gain under the sun? Solomon's answer is nothing. Nothing. Because if you don't consider what's over the sun, here it is, there's no gain apart from God. Solomon's saying, listen, oh, you want to look at life as if there is no God, Nietzsche? You want to do that? Then let's go there. What's the point? Why build hospitals? Why have an orphanage? Why have a police department? Why have legislation? If this is what there is, then this is what there is. But we have to consider something beyond that. And all through the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to encounter everything that we think is important and what we try to gain from, right? So knowledge, I mean, we're products of the Enlightenment. You know, we have people walking around worshiping Elon Musk and all of this type of stuff and more information and more information and more information. And if we can get that and if we can do that, then we will arrive. And Solomon's saying, if it's just for information and knowledge's sake and it's not attached to something greater, then it's a waste. And all of the things that we think wealth, power, religion, friends, work, pleasure, all of those things... If your life consists of those things being the end goal, then your life will be an end. And that's it under the sun. But why? Why do we still feel like that's not enough? Or that we try to ascribe meaning to it, right? I mean, it's, your dog doesn't have these thoughts, okay? Um, your cat might have thoughts, but it's not those thoughts, right? They're always conniving animals, man. Never trust a cat. Like when you look at it, you're like, you're plotting my death right now, right? It's what makes us who we are. Why do we try to ascribe so much meaning to the Super Bowl? It's a ball. It's pigskin filled with air, right? Work all, why do we do that? Now we learn the second phrase, vanity. That's why, vanity. He states his thesis in the second verse, just like any good writer tells you what the goal is in the first few pages. Vanity 
of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, right? So I think he's probably trying to get a point across. He uses this word over 30 times in the book, vanity. And for us, it's a very difficult word um, to translate and to understand. Some of your translations, um, if, if you're using an NIV, says meaningless. That's a poor translation. That's a Western culture translation. Because when we read meaningless, we, we read null and void doesn't have a point. That's not what Solomon is saying. This is what the word looks like in the original Hebrew for the two of you that care, okay? Um, it's habel, right? Can you do that with me? Habel. Like get the phlegm from the back of your throat. Do the habel, right? Hebrew is a guttural language, okay? Habel is, is difficult to understand, and some of your Bibles will have a little footnote, like a one next to that word, and if you look at the bottom of the page, it'll say breath or vapor, Right? The Bible talks about vaping right here. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, right? Vapor, breath. Um, what, what, what does it mean? And, and it's, it's so difficult. And I just thought, I spent a whole day trying to like study and understand this word and do all of that. And then I just sort of had a Holy Spirit moment at the circus. Okay, God just sort of slid in my DMs at the circus, right? So well, we go to the circus as a family. We're hanging out. And you never realize now, um, until you're older and you have kids, like they try to sell you something every two seconds at the service. And they're geniuses. They're like, we're going to give your kid a ticket and it's free for them to get in, but it's going to be an arm and a leg to get you in, mom and dad, right? And then the whole time they're walking around selling stuff, snow cones, popcorn, all that. Our kids got some snow cones and it was great. And then it was difficult sometimes to even watch the circus because they're walking around selling stuff the whole time. And this guy walked by with cotton candy, right? And you can't go to the circus without cotton candy. And it's, it, it's fascinating when I found out how expensive the cotton candy was, right? Because this is sugared air, okay? There's not like the ingredients to make cotton candy, air and sugar. That's it. That's literally what it is. And cotton candy is a substance and it's, and it's here and it's something, but then it's gone, right? There's nothing there. I mean, you could eat pounds and pounds and pounds of cotton candy, and it was as if, and then you go into a diabetic coma, but then it's as if you haven't ate anything at all, right? How can something be there that's a substance, but then not be there? Vanity. Solomon is saying, your life, the breath, the vapor, The mist, your life that you're working so hard to build, the retirement, the 401k, the house, the boat, the dog, the kids, all that, the life you're trying so hard to build, it's about as stable as cotton candy. It's here, but it's not really here. It's fleeting. It's gone. And we don't ever stop and actually think about that because we're caught up in what he tells us in chapter 1, the cycle of life. Because look at what he says there in verse 5. 
The sun rises and the sun goes down. Hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows from the south. Verse 7, the streams run into the sea. What he's saying is there is a cycle of life that we try so hard to ignore, so hard to escape, but there's no shortcut in this. That your life is fleeting. It's sweet and it's here but then it's gone. Why do we feel that way? Did you know that the word vanity, habel, is only two other places in the entire Bible with the exact translation? Think, think. Habel, 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 Abel. Abel. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, fall from grace. They have two children. Cain and Abel. Why would Eve name her second son Abel? Vapor. Here but gone. Because in this part of the story, death has now entered in. You see, when the fall happened, sin entered into the picture and fractured everything that God had created good. And now they understand for the first time. Listen, isn't it so interesting, the profound theology, that what God makes in Adam and Eve is supposed to be eternal and last forever. But then when they disobey God and fall from grace, Adam and Eve's first offsprings die. Because we cannot produce and make anything that lasts forever. And then we see that Cain slays Abel. You see, Ecclesiastes is going to confront us with something that we try to ignore all the time. Death. Poets call it the great equalizer. This is a great equation that will always prove true. One out of every one human beings die. Happy Sunday. Real positive today, right? Why are we unsettled with this? I mean, I mean, listen, you can keto diet, you can P90X it, you can CrossFit it, you can run, rub essential oils on your babies, you can do all that kind of stuff, you can wipe down the counters, you can do all those things. But at the end of the day, nobody breaks that cycle. Nobody breaks it. But why do we try to avoid it? It's almost like don't, don't talk about that. Fear encompasses that. And I think it's because... We're like Andy Grace at Disney World. We took a family trip and, and, and went to Disney World, and Andy Grace got to go to the Bippity Boppity Boutique. And that is where you become a princess. I mean, you're there. You're at the princess castle, and you become a princess. You get the dress, the makeup, the whole thing. She just looks so beautiful. It was real, really a princess, right? Solomon says, That's what you're like in life, trying to avoid death. You're playing dress up. You're playing pretend. You really think that you're in control of your life. Please tell me what you control. Because nobody in this room is null and void of the phone ringing and forever changing the trajectory of your life. 
Sure, you can respond to what life comes at you, but you are in zero control of what life brings to you. And when it comes to the understanding of death, we try to avoid it. And Solomon says, oh, no, 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 no. Don't avoid that. Because everything that I've seen, from wealth, knowledge, pleasure, work, everything comes to this end. And for us to understand the entire book of Ecclesiastes, we don't start with the beginning. We start with the end. And this is how he summarizes the entire book. Ecclesiastes 12. The end of the matter. Here it is, the end of the story. For all has been heard. Christopher Hitchens, we've heard you. The poets, we've heard you. The scientists, we've heard all of you. Here's what it comes down to. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, every good Or evil thing done. Here's what Solomon's saying. At the end of life, at the end of all of this, nobody sits there and says, Oh, I should have done another load of laundry. Oh, I should have worked more hours in order to get the bonus and do all of that. No, when you come to the end of that, under the sun, in vanity, in the fleetingness of life, Solomon says to understand life, look at death. And then live your life in reverse of that. This is wisdom coming from someone who has been there. And he says, if I would have known what the end of my life would have been like, I would have lived completely differently. And so here's what we're going to do for the application today. It's going to be a little bit different, but it's going to be fun. The first thing is when you leave today, you're going to get to get cotton candy. I mean, come on, what other church is doing that, guys? Come on. We're trying, okay, right? We want you to take this cotton candy today. Enjoy it. Give some to your kids. Get them all hyped up on sugar and all that fun stuff and eat it and have a blast. But understand that when you put that cotton candy in your mouth and it's gone, such is your life. That it is fleeting. That you have to be confronted with that reality. But that's not all. That's not all, because if that was it, then vanity of vanities. What I want you to do this week is, I want you to write your own eulogy. I want you to write your own eulogy. So I got to do one this week. A eulogy is a blessing of what you speak. Write it out. What do you want to be remembered by? What's going to be the purpose? And then when you meet and gather with your community groups, I want you guys to read them out loud and do all of that, and I want you to sit and think. And what you write down, I mean, that's your life right there on that little piece of paper, the whole meaning and purpose of it. And whatever you aspire that to be after you're gone, I want you to live in light of that. Because those are the things that actually matter. But thanks be to God, we're not just left with just the book of Ecclesiastes. Do you look at the first verse again. The preacher, the son of David. The son of David. There would be another one who would come in the lineage of David. 
who in the streets, the lame and the blind, would cry out, O son of David, have mercy on me. And he would come, and he would come to confront our reality in light of eternity and in light of heaven. And he said that there's something greater after all of this. There's something connected underneath this that that death does not have the last word. But in John 11, he would say these words, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What Jesus is saying is, I have come and I have something that if you connect your life to that, there you will find the meaning and the purpose of it all. Because Jesus came from over the sun to live life under the sun, to give us the hope and peace that we're all longing for. So as the band comes and leads us in a time of response, I would encourage you, if you don't know the answers to some of these questions, and I get it, some of you are mad and frustrated and you don't like the answers, argue with the Bible, not with me. Because we're confronted with these things. It's things that we don't like to look at, that we want to have another answer for, and we want to try to explain this away, and uh that's not the point, and I don't. And Solomon's saying, there in your own frustration shows the very desire that we're trying to attach ourselves to things that have no meaning. I would love to speak with you if you don't know or have any answers to these questions. When people come and respond in communion, I would love to speak and pray with you today. And you can understand that when you leave this place, that life has a meaning and a purpose. It's just not found under the sun. It's found in the God over it. Heavenly Father, we come before you today grateful for the opportunity of the correction of your word as it corrects our viewpoint and our reality in life. God, we're thankful for um, Solomon's life in a way, that, that you worked in and through him in such a way that through the guidance and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that, that we would be left with this so that we would know what really matters in the end. Gosh, it's not the long hours. It's not the control. It's not winning an argument. It's not this. It's not that. It's being attached to the God of eternity. And our sins separated us from you. The gap was there. But we're thankful that a cross was laid in that gap. And to fill that void. And in and through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we find the true meaning of life. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand where you're at and come forward and partake in communion as you feel led today?